Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you're like me and you're not so great at planning ahead, you have to try Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight is an app that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute, up to seven days in advance. It's perfect for a spontaneous getaway or indulging in a little staycation. And all it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So what are you waiting for? Get in on these killer last minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio where lies the strangling fruit that came from the hand of the sinner. <laughs> it's Andy Greenwald. Amen, brother. Happy Memorial Day. I'm not just spitting verses from the good book, brother. Well, it's a good book. Well, it is a good book. I'm talking about Annihilation, Jeff Vandermeer's stunning opening uh, part of the Southern Reach trilogy, which is the subject of today's Double Down Book Club. Happy this, Memorial Day! This is exciting. We All we ever really wanted to do was have a book club, Chris. I, I had bigger dreams for myself, nope. but sure. This is where I tap out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I w- wanted to... Uh, I just I wanted to contribute to the world in some way. I wanted uh, some hers sour cream and onion potato chips for my birthday. You gave me that. And I wanted a book club, and you gave me that. I think you were worried that I wasn't going to come through. With for, chips? For your birthday. You gave me something real. Yeah. I appreciate that. I, I got Andy some some of the finest foods that you can order on the internet. Manna. Yeah. Guys, we're excited to talk about this book. First of all, again, thank you to everyone who read the book. Yeah, Um, it's super cool that we can just be like, let's read a book together, gang. And also, because of that, and because it's a holiday, if you have not yet read Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation, um, you can just put this pot in the hopper and come back to it when you finish the book. We're going to talk about the book... um, this is kind. This book kind of can't be spoiled. Well, we should also say this is a strange. This is a unique book club for but, us. We've yep. done a couple of these. Uh, we are joined today, later in the pod, by the author of the book. Jeff Vandermeer was kind enough to let us call him at his home in Florida, where he lives underneath the shadow of a haunted. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Lighthouse. Lighthouse. Just, just among his moldering journals. Yeah, I think he has a couple tide pools. No, he's he's a really cool guy. Uh, he talked about the book and he talked about the adaptation of the book. Uh, it's being made by Alex Garland. It's coming out this year. Yeah, and this is another reason why we wanted to get people in front of this uh, book because I think this movie is going to be something we're going to be talking about. A lot of people are going to be talking about. Yes. It was interesting to hear from Jeff that I think any author who has his or her book adapted for the big screen goes through some some version of this. But it does sound like the book is the book. The movie is going to be the movie. The two they both sound dope. I mean, they the, both the sound book dope in is their own dope. Ways. Um, I can't remember why I read this book. If it was you, or if it was that I heard that it was being made into a movie, because I have a very annoying habit of whenever I f- find out that something is like going to be a BBC series or the Coen Brothers are going to yeah. make it, I'm like, I got to read that so that I can act like I would knew I th- about it. First. I think it was me. And here, let me tell you why. Let me t- let me tell you the origin story of how this book ended up in our hands. Okay. Uh, I was in one of my favorite bookstores in New York, Three Lives Books Bookshop in that the West still Village. Open. God, I hope so. I just, I'm, I'm scared to look, honestly, because book court closed. All the good bookstores are yeah. closing. Partners in crime closed. And so I was just, it? just it did. And I was, I was going through the shelves, and I saw three beautiful little paperbacks in these bright day glow colors, and I found it really compelling. And I, first of all, let me just say this to you: I judge books by their covers. Yeah, I think of everyone course. should. Yeah. And what was interesting about this is that Vandermeer wrote a trilogy, the Southern Reach trilogy. What FSG's publisher did was very cool. They took all three of the Southern Reach trilogy books, Annihilation, that we're talking about today, Authority, and Acceptance, and they published them in 2014, just a couple months apart. And I have to say, it was, there was something, maybe this is the TV fan in me, but there was something really appealing 
about seeing that there was a complete world and a complete vision there for the taking. That it wasn't going to be a situation like um, The Passage, which is another book that, that you and I fell hard for and we should talk about at some point, where as exciting as it was to read the first one, there were years between the first and yeah. second and second and third. Now, all respect to authors who take time to do stuff, but sure. Vandermeer churned this out and here it was. So it was kind of cool to know that I was going on a journey and that it was laid out for me. Yeah, I, I read Annihilation on one plane flight from LA to New York during after the throne season last year, and it really did my head in. This is not the kind of book that you and I usually read. We love genre fiction. We talk about it a lot, but we generally are talking about crime fiction. Mm -hmm. This is ostensibly a science fiction book, but as we get into the, in our conversation with Jeff, this is a book that is really more about science in a way that I was completely unfamiliar with. He yeah, talks about the natural world in ways that are disquieting. I think it... The, the, so Dave Tompkins wrote a really awesome piece about this trilogy in the LA Review of Books that I tweeted out uh, earlier last week so you'll be listening to this Monday so I tweeted it out last week but I can I can tweet it out again and Dave talks about this idea of hyper objects which is this th things that the human brain can't quite understand mm -hmm. and and so for as much as this book Annihilation is about science and it's about a biologist and a surveyor and a psychologist all things all jobs where your your goal is to somehow bring order to chaos, right? You're trying to say this plant is this and and this bug is this and the reason your brain is doing that is because of this and mm -hmm. if the river goes that way and this is over here then that's that. And map making, um, mapping the human brain, mapping you know the the natural world. But the whole charm of this book strangely is it's inexpl inexplicable like parts you know it's it's the magic in in a weird way and i don't mean that in the corny poof way i mean that in the what if an a dolphin had human eyes it's kind of way and and you just and saying to yourself well what if and keeping the, the what if going and keeping the you what if you didn't have an explanation for everything it's a very neat construction too because annihilation is about people um as you alluded to people with very rigid jobs Essentially, they're all map makers of different stripes, whether yeah. you're a biologist or you're, or you're a psychiatrist, psychologist, um, going into the unexplainable and being stymied by it. Mm -hmm. um, all storytellers want to take something that's inside of them and find a way to communicate it to more people. Um, really risk-taking uh, storytellers do the same things, not with a story about, you know, Jack and Jill go up the hill or whatever, but about their dreams. And it's funny that we're talking about this book a week after we're talking about Twin Peaks or in the middle of talking about Twin Peaks because there is something slightly similar here in that you can read pages of Annihilation and not really – you sort of levitate because I, as, as specific as Jeff Vandermeer is in his language and as specific as he is with descriptions of natural things that he sees on his own nature walks in northern Florida, I don't really know what he's talking about. I can't picture it. No, what, what, what I'm vibing off of is – the, the tone he's using to describe them, the way they interact with each other, and the sense of, I said that word before, but I'll say it again, disquiet. There are noises in the jungle yeah. in Area X. Something There's... is lurking in the reeds. The, you know, we a lot of the books that you and I love are, um, they're guidebooks. Like, they take you into a world and they immerse you by showing you all the vocabulary and the processes of robbing a bank or being a spy or you know, um, you know, corrupting a town in the case of Ross Thomas, mm -hmm. and they do so with incredible specificity. Uh, it's one of the things I love about like my favorite dramatic works. Often are obsessed with process and are obsessed with the specific language spoken by the people who do a certain job. Yeah, this is about the event, 
and Area X and the border. And it was a confrontation for me to to really like fill it in. I bet you and I have very different <laughs> visions of what happens in this book and what it looks like. And in a lot of ways, you know, there's a lot of maps online of the world of annihilation mm-hmm. and what the what the, what area X looks like. And I found myself very challenged at points to be like, I don't understand. Does the beach just go forever? Yeah. You know, why I don't understand. Did, how far is it from the lighthouse to camp to the tunnel to the tower, you know, the tunnel tower, and what is the tunnel tower, and do the words on the on the wall mean anything, and what is the crawler? I mean, there, there's a lot of of negative space for you to fill in in this book. These this book and the series in general, um, they it, they don't do what we want them to do often. Mm-hmm. You know, I and it resists a lot of I'll say yours, I'll say mine, my hopes and dreams for it. You know, there is a narrative that, that you're promised at the beginning of adventurers going into the unknown. And it's almost like you've, you, you accept your ticket on that ride because you think you know what that ride is. Yeah. Um, in our conversation with Jeff, he referenced Kafka. Um, Kafka is probably a better um, point of reference for this than the adventure fiction of Michael Crichton because – or like something like The Ruins, which is an, another right. book about the natural world creeping That's up. That's a good on, example. Yeah. It, this doesn't give you what you think you want going in. It gives you something very different. And, you know, it, we our conversation for today and our conversation with Jeff was specifically about Annihilation. Um, you and I have both read the other two books in the trilogy and found them, found there are highs in them and there are lows in them. And, and I say this with real respect. I don't want this to sound pejorative. This trilogy can be very frustrating, I think, for that reason, because we want things to be certain way. You know, we we talked to Jeff about there are some John le Carre elements in the second book. You and I probably wanted more. You know, I I was excited for it to go further in that direction. But no, this stays a series about a this this author, Jeff Vandermeer's very specific dreamlike world. Yeah, that he's created, and I think even beyond when you, even if you, they're, 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 you know, he, he was inspired by a dream to write this book. That's he, right. He says he he saw the or, or thought of the the inscription that I yelled out at the beginning of this podcast in a dream, and that he had this vision of the of the tower tunnel. Um, and for as much as it's based in dreams, it also takes you back to a time in your life where. Especially, I think that you associate this with childhood, but it's increasingly hard to feel like there is unknowable things out there because there's so much information. So, and yeah. I think if sometimes we talk a little bit about the idea of living in a bubble, but I, I think if there's a bubble for me now, it's that it's hard for me to conceive of the unknown anymore because of, you know, if you live in cities for a really long time and then you just spend a mm-hmm. lot of time on the internet, you just think that kind of have time and history and space and geography all laid out for you. And this book doesn't take place anywhere in particular, at any time in particular, and the event that triggers it is not explained, and the the governmental sort of agency at the center of it is not particularly... You ever really have an... Is, is this like an extension of FEMA? Is this like a CIA? Like, what is this? It takes you back to that time in your life when you would walk out the door and you didn't know what was going to happen and you didn't know what was around the corner or down the street or a mile away. Well, let's take that a step further. We love genre fiction or the crime fiction that we've often recommended here because it gives us, like all great fiction or maybe all great art, a chance to step into other shoes. Mm-hmm. It gives us windows into other worlds. Um, you know, you, but there but there are limits to that. And I think this book really undid me because 
it was so completely alien and foreign on a different level. So for example, we like to read Richard Price books because the way that he has, he can make police speak and, and yeah. criminals speak and a sort of shadow world that existed underneath the New York City that we were, I guess, lucky enough never to really step foot into. That said, in Lush Life, we've been to Schiller's. Yep. We've been to the Lower East Side. R.I.P. Schiller's. We've, I know, closing. We've walked those streets, so yeah. we're really just kind of seeing just below them. What this book made me realize is, I mean, this is, shouldn't really come as a surprise to anyone who, know, who knows me, but I don't know anything about nature. Like, no. I don't know what I'm looking at if I look at a view. I mean, I moved to California now, and all of a sudden there are flowers in the backyard. All of a sudden I have a backyard. I don't know what these things are. Right. I'm completely removed from something that is essential. Well, even the idea of something, uh, like, even just using that word, a view. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a view, and then there's actually this immersive experience of the nature is actually, like, encroaching on me. You know, there isn't a view. It's actually like my surroundings. Yeah, and and the book does a very good job of sort of flipping your your point of view. Whereas, when you read the book and you're 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 basically embedded with this team of scientists venturing into the unknown, it's very natural to um, uh, align yourselves with them and think, well, they're going to go, they're going to collect samples or whatever, like an away mission on Star Trek, and then they're going to return to safety. But it's not really like that. What is safety? Where do you actually want to be? What is calling you? Where do you belong? These are all the questions that come into play here. And when we spoke to Jeff about it, he, it does seem as if he himself is often quite comfortable going on long hikes and yeah. maybe maybe not coming without, back. Without guidance. Um, do you have theories, are you, working theories about what the writing means? Um, the writing on the wall? No. I mean, and that and that's one of the things that if you enter a book like this with a certain spirit, you could be frustrated by it or you can just be sort of charmed and dazzled and pleasantly confused by it. Yeah, you know? it's something that I think we've been dealing with a lot in the last year with a lot of the stuff we've been watching, whether it's Westworld and now Twin Peaks and certain parts of The Leftovers where you are – you think that what you're seeing is somehow a a, a, a going to – be a key to understanding the mm-hmm. other stuff in the world, right? Like everything so, is a clue. So if there's a dream or a flashback or a vision, whether even it's like Brand's vision in Game of Thrones, like that it's going to be, it's more of a, a, a deciphering tool for the real world that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. But more and more, I think we're seeing things like Annihilation and, and very much so Twin Peaks now, where the subconscious is the conscious, like the, the, the below the surface stuff is the surface. Mm-hmm. And it makes it, very challenging to understand what's going on, but it also it's very hard to resist trying to crack codes. Yes, but it also I think makes us it sort of forces us to interrogate this desire to understand things. Yeah, which is, which you know I have to say is a very if that is not it's not new in the culture, but it's certainly more prevalent in the way we cover culture and talk about it. I would say that's a TV thing. I would say that the TV in general, you know, throughout its history has been it's a it's a it's a it's a, a furnace for plot. You shovel story in, and everything is a clue or a piece of that story. You piece it together. We are all Detective Lenny Briscoe at the beginning of a season, then you know we solve the case at the end of it. Um, Twin Peaks has challenged that. You know, it reminds us that it doesn't have to be this thing. And 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 I think dipping a toe into the into Area X is effective at that as well. And then the last point to mention, because we're going to be talking about this world again later in the year when Alex Garland's film comes out. Yeah. Um, it's always so fascinating when something that is abstract or in our heads as a novel becomes um, concrete and visual in a film. I can't think of a more exciting translation in recent times than this because of how 
um, rich and lush and completely speculative the book is. And Alex Garland, who is himself a novelist, who made Ex Machina, has made this movie. And as you know, Jeff was actually quite open in talking about the adaptation with us. It's which Alex I think Garland's you'll be, movie, yeah. Which you'll be excited to hear. It, you know, it's it's not the book. Yeah. And he has Natalie Portman and Oscar Isaac and Tessa Thompson and Gina Rodriguez and I think Mary Louise Parker um, playing these roles. I think that's incredibly exciting. And I think that people, I don't know, the, People, I think people are ready to be disquieted. Did, did this make you... We talked to Jeff about his new novel, Born, which I haven't read yet, but apparently features a giant flying mechanized bear. Mm-hmm. So that's a plus. We don't we don't really do sci-fi very often, do you? Did, how did this make you feel about... It didn't... I, it never really occurred to me that it was sci-fi, I, I, any more so than Lost did. Right. You know, I, I think that it was more something where I thought it was going to be like a world-building apocalyptic dystopia kind of like a, a pat not not mm-hmm. unlike the passage and it was much more like Lovecraft or you know like the weird fiction that I think Jeff definitely has acknowledged uh it was an influence on it so why not without further ado why don't we get to our conversation with Jeff Vandermeer thanks very much for checking out uh the Double Down Book Club podcast for the Memorial Day yeah we're gonna have a new book for you guys to read soon yeah okay without further ado let's get to our conversation with Jeff Vandermeer but first let's hear from our sponsors Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Tile. What if you could find anything in seconds? Now you can with Tile, the tiny Bluetooth tracker that makes finding your things easier than ever. Simply attach Tile to your keys, wallet, laptop, even your bike, anything you don't want to lose. Finding your things is easy. Just open up the free Tile app on your phone and you get to see where that lost item is on a map. And then you quickly go find your item by making your Tile ring. And it'll be back in your hands in seconds. And if it's your phone that's missing, just double press on your Tile to make it ring, even on silent. Every day, over 2 million lost items are located with Tile. Join the millions who have used Tile to find their lost stuff. Get yours today at gettile.com slash watch and save up to 30% per Tile on a multi-pack, plus free shipping. And because Tile makes the perfect gift for a limited time, get a free gift box with a multi-pack order. Go to gettile.com slash watch. That's gettile.com slash watch. Today's episode is sponsored by Shudder, the premium streaming video service devoted to thrillers, horror, and suspense. Backed by AMC Networks, Shudder has a growing and dynamic selection of thrilling premieres, originals, and exclusives, including pregnancy horror comedy Prevenge, that is a fantastic, fantastic movie, legendary BBC shocker Ghostwatch, and the complete series of Tales from the Dark Side. New this week is Shudder's latest exclusive, the meta-slasher Lake Bodum. A hit at South by Southwest, Lake Bodum is inspired by the true story of four teenagers who were stabbed to death while camping. 40 years later, a group of teenagers arrive at the same campsite, hoping to solve the infamous murders by reconstructing it minute by minute. Declared a superior slasher movie by The Hollywood Reporter, Lake Bodum is a horror film you do not want to miss. See it today, only on Shudder. Shudder is available on the web, iOS, Android, Chromecast, Apple TV, and Roku for $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year. But our listeners can get a free month by going to Shudder.com and entering promo code watch this is a dope service take advantage of it check it out it'll scare the hell out of you okay chris and i are very excited to be joined by the author of our book club pick annihilation jeff vandermeer who is joining us on the phone from i believe florida jeff thank you so much for joining us 
Uh, thanks so much for having me. We're excited to talk to you about the book. I especially want to thank you for talking to us about a book that for you is more than a couple years old. It was published in 2014. Your new novel, Born, is out now, and we will talk to you a little bit about that at the end. But but thank you. Is this is it difficult to go back in time and talk about the Southern Reach, or are you still still mired in it? Um, not at all. I mean, I'm, I'm still working on one last novella called The Bird Watchers that's set there. The film is coming out next year, and there have been all these foreign language editions in between. So I have kind of been living it, and you know, there's all kinds of fan art and fan fiction and stuff. So I don't really mind it at all. I'm, I'm really kind of flattered that it's still going strong. And I guess it is the kind of place where it's pretty easy to get lost in. That's sort of baked into the concept. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's some ambiguity there that readers kind of inhabit with their own imagination. Absolutely. Um, I want to begin with kind of a general question for you. Um, first, I have to cop to my own weakness. I, I, I have to say I don't read that much science fiction. And I realized when I was reading your book, and I read it, I read it the whole trilogy, but I read Annihilation, I think, on one long cross-country plane flight, and it haunted my dreams. Um, these, these sort of biases that I carry about it, I realized that when I was thinking about, about science fiction, and I, and I don't even know if that's a term you use to describe these books. I'd be curious if you do. But I imagine a very hard science. Like, I imagine things like like many cliches, like robots or spaceships or phasers, but you read the, your, your books and there's a lushness and a softness to the nature that you write about that is very surprising and very kind of intoxicating. I had to sort of rewire my brain to visualize it. Yeah, I kind of come at things from kind of a Kafkaesque point of view. I've always had kind of a, a dual uh, kind of foot in the literary mainstream and in genre. And, you know, I've been called every label under the sun, basically, and I just kind of go with it and try to evade as many of the labels as possible <laughs> along the way. Um, but, yeah, I was kind of in this, these books thinking of it as kind of using the tropes of uncanny fiction to explore something alien. So, you know, I never really do science fiction, like, straight on. And then the fact that 90% of that book, for example, is description of or based on the hiking trail I do out at St. Mark's, you know, makes it kind of autobiographical and and to see it seems very naturalistic to me in many ways. So it's kind of a mix of things and um, I don't get too hung up on the labels. But yeah, I'd, I'd say it's not straightforward science fiction. But there is a lot of science in it. You, you alluded to walks that you take. Can you talk, tell us a little bit more about that, where, about where you're specifically talking about? Yeah, there's a place called the St. Mark's uh, Wildlife Refuge, and uh, the St. Mark's Lighthouse is out there, which is a, a, a defunct but but, current, but, but priorly uh, active lighthouse. And um, basically, there's a 14-mile walk I do out there where I've seen a bunch of <laughs> strange things like uh, dolphins that come up into the freshwater uh, areas uh, at high tide to feed. And, you know, when you first see one of those, in a place where it's not supposed to be, it's a very uncanny experience because your brain literally like locks up. It keeps looking for some other image to impose on this thing that's not supposed to be there. Hmm. Um, so those the, those kinds of signifiers and those kinds of experiences really inhabit the whole series. You know, moments that that are kind of like from the real world, but are kind of uncanny in in a way. You know, Jeff, you you mentioned the brain trying to negotiate the things that it's experiencing or seeing and I think some something that I really loved about Annihilation is how these characters are sort of defined by their occupations you know and and those occupations are all in different ways uh, in 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 service of categorizing the world and trying to understand the world and they're confronted with a world that is uncategorizable and that defies what they know about how, you know how to do their jobs and how to understand their surroundings. How did you choose the the sort of jobs that the characters were going to be doing on on this expedition? 
Well, it's really really strange because I had uh, in my head, I had this dream that you probably read about where yeah. I, I walked down into this tunnel tower and saw these living words on the wall. And then I woke up from the dream in the morning after having written down some notes during the night. And in the morning, I had the character of the biologist in my head. And I had like the first few pages of the novel that I just wrote kind of automatically. And then, then I kind of tried to make sense of it. It's like what here legitimately lives here, what doesn't. Do they actually have names? Are they all women, or is it some other mix of people? And, um, you know, every time I tried to assign a name to the characters, I knew them less and less. And, you know, I waited one day to think about it, and when I woke up the next morning, I had all their backstories in my head, and they were locked in as those professions. And again, the more I tried to actually assign names to them, the less it worked. So in a weird way, I got I knew them better without that. Um, and then it was interesting, of course, uh, to have them defined just by their, their actions and what they say, more or less, which is, you know, kind of how we judge people anyway, not necessarily by their name. Um, so, so it just kind of came about naturally, and then I made sense of it and, and, and kind of divided the mystery of why that was between the Southern Reach secret agency's paranoia and what was going on in Area X. And, well, there's also a, <clears throat> a recurring theme throughout the trilogy, although we're speaking specifically about Annihilation, where characters in in the beginning you've labeled them by their jobs but as the series progresses um we meet characters who have changed their name who ask to be called different things we meet them under different guises and under different they may in fact be completely different people who almost embody the same skin that that seems to be a a, a theme of particular interest to you in this work well i do think that there's some themes of like doppelgangers and whatnot because of what area x is doing and i kind of wanted to play with that and i think it's kind of unsettling when you can't really put a name to something, and so it had kind of, I thought, a destabilizing effect in the narrative that fit the kind of paranoia and claustrophobia I was going for, especially in the second book. In fact, the funniest thing about the second book is that there are actually answers in the third, but there are some readers who are rendered so paranoid by the second book they don't believe any of the answers <laughs> in the third book. Uh, um, Jeff, you know, one of the things I, I was reading, I, totally by accident, but I read Annihilation almost, I can't remember if it was before or after, but it was basically in conjunction with um, Peter Matheson's The Shadow Country, which is a, a you know, obviously another, another epic novel about um, the taming or not taming of Florida and, and, and treats Florida like a, a frontier. I, you've talked a lot about the influence that the geography and the, um, the feel of the Southeast has have a, had on the book, but I was wondering if you could talk specifically about Florida because I, you know, I, it's a place that I've only visited. I, you know, I went there to visit uh, grandparents, but it's one of the most distinctive places I've ever been. You know, even when I go back now, as soon as you smell Florida, after you get off the plane, you know exactly where you are in a way that there is very, very unique in the world. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the the, lo- the real life locations that influence the book. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a few things that influence the, the, that that book, and then going on the Southern Reach Agency and its setting in in kind of small town South. Um, first of all, living in North Florida, it's kind of a weird experience because it has kind of the terrain at times of southern Georgia, which can kind of lull you into thinking of it as being like more like hardwood forests and things like that, but the rate of decay is a lot more like the tropics, <laughs> and you have a lot more fungus and other things uh, growing. In fact, I'm looking into my backyard right now, and when we left on this book tour for Bourne a, a month ago, there was like nothing living there, and now there's like several large, looming, mysterious bushes um, and even a small tree that sprouted up and a ton of fruiting bodies. <laughs> 
um, and then all kinds of things decaying under the welter of almost monsoon rain. So it's this weird thing where the initial landscape kind of lulls you into thinking it's one thing, and then when you really look at it and you live in it, you realize you're kind of living in a subtropical zone um, that shouldn't be that way. And so the you know the mund- when you really look at it, it is kind of a strange landscape. Um, and then, you know, I also had day jobs when I had day jobs where, for example, I had to visit every county health department in Florida over an 18-month period, and that's like 67 counties. And they were always in weird remote locations, <laughs> you know, which kind of exposed me to all kinds of terrain in South and North and Central Florida. And there's always something to me a little bit, a little bit wild about Florida, even in the built-up places. Um, kind of poking through because you know honestly if you got rid of pesticide and air conditioning this place would be reclaimed by vegetation yeah. within six months i think the, i think miami has is 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 trying to prove you right right now <laughs> well i mean yeah they're doing stupid things like building pumps for the situation now with regard to flooding when it's going to be just worse in 10 years who knows if there'll be a south florida in 30 years yeah that, that that's so, sort yeah. of one of the things i wanted to get at with you here is that in general i think we can probably all agree that as Americans, we don't talk about the idea of environment enough. But yeah. that said, when we do, we often talk about it in very distancing terms. We say, well, we're either going to save it or we're going to destroy it. But we, in, in all the conversations we up group myself in that group tend to have, we humans are sort of removed from it. We are the deciders. Yeah. We are separate and apart. It's just something that happens to us or happens around us. But your, your books, in very subtle and very powerful ways, make the opposite argument, that nature is active and reclaiming us basically and 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 that and that's it's insidious the way that that sort of like that like well, the subtropics creeps into your mind well also i think that um we're not separate from our environment it's hilarious to me that we talk about terraforming other planets and how we need to do that so we have a livable atmosphere and right. everything there and i'm like well could we please terraform this planet if we are actually <laughs> going to make all these changes anyway could we could we do something that makes it more livable for everybody? And that includes animals and wilderness, because that's kind of intrinsic to our own survival. So so there is something about what you say, which is, first of all, that nature is more resilient than we think. Um, and that it, it, even though we've changed it, it still will sprout up wherever it can. Uh, but there's also, I think, a theme in all of my work that we need to renegotiate our relationship to the landscape and to the organisms that live in it if we want to assure our own survival. Jeff, you know, we talk often on this pod about um, deciphering pop culture. I mean, talking about whether it's Westworld or Alien Covenant or mm. anything that we're talking about. Where, where and, and obviously with the internet, you've got this engine of, of, uh, of information and theory, theorizing about what things mean and I was kind of curious. I mean, this this would obviously be the case in the 1980s if you wrote this book and somebody just came up to you at a reading and, and said, "Hey, this is what I think the the writing on the wall means." But I, I wondered. You mentioned the fan art and the fan uh, the fan sites to, around the trilogy. Have have you uh, encountered anything that you were like, "Man, I I hadn't thought of that," or in, in anything particularly inspiring or that you found very compelling along the way as, since the books have come out in 2014? Well, the art's been rather spectacular, in part because, for some odd reason, there have been like professional artists who have decided to do fan art for the series. But then there's things like there's fan fiction online combining True Detective and Annihilation with Rust going down into the tunnel tower with a biologist. And I find what? those kinds of yeah, and I find those kinds of conversations kind of 
um, oddly really fascinating. I mean, it's like really interesting. You could say from a certain perspective of critique of both things that it solves some problems in both. <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, so I find things like that really fascinating. I find just because I love them from a fictional point of view, the kind of conspiracy theory um, kind of mode in which some of the discussion boards have gone on the Southern Reach. Um, and there is kind of like a like a whole sedimentary layer in those books of tropes from all of the horror and science fiction movies I've ever seen and all the weird fiction that I've that I've that I've read and I think that, that that's also what kind of speaks to some of the fans and where some of this stuff comes from because it's kind of reconstituting it or layering it in a slightly different way as kind of a renovation and the fans kind of respond to that. Yeah, and then authority of course has the whole espionage <clears throat> element to it that I think I I loved the the sort of Lacare element of of the Yeah, I'm a one. huge Lacare fan as might be obvious, but <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, um and, and so that that layer too is something that people engage with. Uh, there's even a hypnosis website that reviews every hypnosis novel every, every novel with hypnosis in it as if it is erotic. Huh. And um, oh. they reviewed Annihilation and gave it five stars, and they reviewed Authority and said it was the worst erotic hypnosis novel I'd ever read. <laughs> um, so there's those kinds of reactions, too. <laughs> wow. You win some, you lose some. Is there? Do you think that's a, <laughs> Yeah, is, you know, there's no win situation there, but you know. Do you think erotic <laughs> hypnotist is a legitimate job in 2017? Oh, that's, yeah. That's a pretty it good show. It probably is. Into. I, I, I have to say that for anyone who's, who's into that, and that's fine, uh, these novels were not written that way. Yeah, but, you, you know, could probably anyway. major in erotic hypnosis at University of Phoenix or something. <laughs> I think that's absolutely yeah. right. Um, so I, I think anyone who reads these books, and particularly the first one, will will pick up on some of these themes of, of uh, environmentalism and, and basically in subtle ways asking people to reconsider the landscape that they live in. But there was another theme that I really responded to, which is, and it, it's crazy that I'm saying this, but it does seem like a relic. It seems like something that is increasingly less and less possible, which is the possibility for people to lose themselves or to just start over or tap out and start again. Um, the coast is the forgotten coast in this book. And obviously, you know, anyone who reads the, the back cover will will know your connection to northern Florida and maybe kind of yeah. geolocate the books there. But really, it it doesn't have to be there. And, no. you know, in, in The Lighthouse Keeper and his story, um, The Biologist, even Control, there are these people who at a certain point give in to this feeling and actually welcome the sense of being lost. And there's a sort of a sense of annoyance that people keep trying to come and find them. Um, clearly, that, that must appeal to you on some level. Well, it does. I mean, it does reflect at least a situational feeling when you're out hiking in the middle of nowhere. And there have been times when I am hiking a new trail and I, I get disoriented. And it's both a, a horrifying feeling and at the same time kind of exhilarating feeling because we don't really get lost that much anymore, right? right. <laughs> Between all our devices and everything. And so, you know, you might say that's kind of weird that you want to be lost. But at the same time, it does speak to actually being out in the unknown and kind of being you know, breaking away from, from, from everything you know is actually kind of exhilarating. There are other kinds of moments of lack of control. Like I once was confronted by a Florida panther on a trail, and um, that that was a awe-inspiring experience because, you know, I, I didn't have any weapons with me. I, I had this experience of just, like, standing on the trail. You're, t- you're talking about miles, a, already a, tired. a professional hockey player you ran into, you're saying. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and just waiting for this thing to either eat me or not, <laughs> which is both hilarious and, and extremely awe-inspiring at the same time, you know, because you don't he, usually get in those kinds of situations either. He didn't, right? 
<laughs> no, I didn't. I, this, we're not I sure. Not this could be Jeff Stoffelgeier we're talking to. That's I right. could be. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know. <laughs> we can't see you right now. Jeff, not to do too, right. too arch of a segue, but you're talking about lack of control and to some extent, you know, once an author puts the work into the world and that, like, you've been lucky enough to have this book uh, adapted yeah. and you've been really lucky because, you know, you're being adapted by one of the most interesting filmmakers working today, Alex Garland. And a novelist himself. Yeah. And um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about... You know, obviously, I'm sure you're very excited for it. The stills from the set look exquisite and amazing. But what's it been like to sort of have your novel be be go through the process of being adapted for the big screen? Well, the first thing that I realized is that it, even though Alex Carlin says he's not an auteur, he is an auteur. So <laughs> I, my expectation was to not have anything to do with the movie, and, and that's the actual fact. Um, he wrote the script, and he was kind enough to keep me in the loop during every part of the process, but that wasn't for my, for me to you know, put my two cents in, basically. Um, it was just so I would know what's going on. So uh, there'd be conversations like, um, we're thinking about putting the tower tunnel under the lighthouse. How do you feel about that? And I'd be like, well, I'm not sure I feel about that. And he'd be like, great, we're going to do that. <laughs> um, so, um, so, and I don't say that in any pejorative way. Alex has been incredibly kind uh, in keeping me in the loop. Uh, and I did finally see the film this last uh, Friday in L.A. <laughs> wow. And uh, it's actually, I think, more surreal than the novel. Ooh. Um, there were a couple places where I was like, I might need an anchor here. Wow. <laughs> um, it's, the ending is, I think, so mind-blowing and in some ways different from the book that um, it seems to me to be the kind of ending that, like 2001 or something like that, people will be talking about it around the water cooler for, like, years. Wow. <laughs> um, That's exciting. So it's, it's, and visually, it's amazing. Um, I must say that. <laughs> Um, and that's probably all I really should say, since uh, I'm not sure what the studio wants me to say or not say at this point. But I is, just saw a rough cut. But it is funny to hear you talk about it, because in a way, this is just the highest profile, biggest budgeted fan art there is, right? Because this is, you you, you, you've, you've, you wrote something that is incredibly lush and incredibly detailed in its um, in its observations and, and, yeah. and, uh, and the world that it creates. But it is because it is a it is a book. It's you know it, it leaves it up to our imagination to really fill in those blanks, and that's a cha- and that was an exciting challenge for me as a as a as a reader who's not even used to this world you're describing. Now it will be made explicitly visual, and it sounds like some of the decisions were to make to keep the 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 ambiguity, but it has to be a very different kind of ambiguity on the big screen. It does because there is actually a lot of interiority, no matter how much the biologist doesn't like reporting the dialogue of other human beings for the first book. Um, I can actually write dialogue. Um, The, the uh, you know, there is an interiority you can't really capture, and so there are scenes in the in the book that are just like a couple sentences, like when the biologist's husband is is hauled away by the Southern Reach, that are whole dramatized scenes. Right. In the in the in the in the movie because that makes sense and there's other things that are more internalized that don't make it onto the screen um, and then just decisions that that Garland made uh, to to deviate from the book. Uh, there's at least one scene though where a character kind of disappears that I wish I had thought of for the book because it's like true to the spirit of the book. Mm-hmm. So there are moments like that that help anchor it. And of course, purely from a cynical point of view, I'm glad that they kept terms like Area X and Southern Reach <laughs> to, to anchor it to the book. Um, but yeah, it, it's actually more surreal than the, the book, which is kind of hilarious to me. Let's just, um, we, we, we'll let you go in a moment, but we did want to talk briefly yeah. about Born, um, which is your new novel. And I wish, we could, yeah. I, wish I could say I, I've finished it yet. I haven't. So I'd, I'd love yeah, no f- for you to give a chance, you know, just have, the, have an opportunity to talk to you um, 
our listeners and your new readers about it. Because once again, like the Southern Reach trilogy, you, you put readers in a um, complex and challenging and disorienting world. And once again, there is a little, there, there is a, um, see, I don't even have the language for the, for the way that you write. I was going to say um, metaphysical, but it, it is actually physical again. You know, there's something that is both um, biological and, um, and, and potentially fictional that exists in this. Well, I think that the difference is that whereas Annihilation is um, coming at science fiction from the uncanny, uh, Born is coming at science fiction from the fantastical and from anime and from traditions like Mobius and Jodorowsky. There's a giant flying bear in it. It shouldn't be science fiction, even though I provided explanation. Um, but that just gave me an opportunity to include biotech and talk about issues like that and talk about issues of scarcity and uh, the environment in a more urban setting in a way that didn't require me to have loads and loads of this normal kind of hard science explanation. Because at the core of the story is this, this woman, Rachel, this scavenger, who finds this bit of biotech that learns how to speak and that she raises as a child. And so in some ways, I think it's a more accessible book than The Southern Reach because that's the core of the novel. Mm. And it's about characters who are trying to be their better selves, who are trying to connect and Annihilation and the other books in the series are all about characters that really can't connect. And that's a major difference. I, I also just think I speak for, for everyone listening when I say that all entertainment would be improved by giant flying bears, especially True Detective, <laughs> but, but that might just be me. But, but you're, you're, Maybe you're, when David Milch comes on, we can get some flying bears. You're doing the Lord's work with well, flying I was, bears. I was quite, I was, it was just, I was quite satisfying to me to have the New York Times, the LA Times, and other places have to just use the words giant flying bear over and over again uh, so. if nothing else uh, if nothing else right and, and and to think we have a a wild panther to thank for the fact that you were able to write this book and put that word those words together in that order in our newspapers it's amazing yeah, pretty much um jeff thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us um uh, I, I I hope that everyone who's read Annihilation will check out the other books in the Southern Reach trilogy and Born, and then um, have very strong opinions about the movie when it's released next year. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Jeff. Yeah, thank you very much. Take care. Okay, man, that was Jeff Vandermeer, author of Annihilation, the Double Down Book Club selection for this week. We'll come up with another one pretty soon. Greenwald, uh, happy Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day, Baranski. Get some barbecue. Yeah, going. I think we'll try to catch up with Fargo this coming Thursday. We gotta keep talking Twin Peaks. And we gotta keep talking Twin Peaks, so uh, get let's get weird and let's get criminal. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Tile. Protect the things you use the most with Tile, the convenient tiny Bluetooth tracker. Simply attach the Tile to anything you don't want to lose, from your keys to your wallet, even your bike, and then use the free Tile app to locate your missing stuff. Act now, get free shipping, and save 30% per Tile on a multi-pack. And for a limited time, you get a free gift box. Go to gettile.com watch. That's gettile.com watch. Thanks again to Shudder for sponsoring today's episode of The Watch. Backed by AMC Network, Shudder grants you access to the best in thrillers, horror, and suspense, including Shudder-exclusive Lake Bodum. Stream them all today at Shudder.com and use promo code WATCH at checkout for a free month.